Welcome to the Ask Brian Podcast Radio Show, where you'll hear from some of the most successful founders and CEOs of businesses and startups, sharing their best advice for success, and even some stories on how their mistakes actually make them even more successful. Now, here are your hosts, Brian and Tracy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show on KHS 1220 and 98.1 FM in beautiful Los Angeles County. And you're listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show, A-S-K-B-R-I-E-N, because that's the only way to spell Brian with an E. Many people have always asked, and so we always start the show off because not everyone has listened to the Ask Brian Show, and they always want to know why Ask Brian is spelled with an E. So because of that, we have our engineer that begins with an E that sometimes gets excited it also starts with an E and can be excellent. But we're going to see what are the other E's and reasons why As Brian has the E in them. Because when I went to school, what did, what did I say before? That there was different names for Brian. Like- no, the names were always spelled B-R-I-A-N or B-R-Y-N. Or the Irish family down the street. O'Brien. Who were always at the pub. I'm sorry. Easy there. I'm sorry. Patrick's secrets are out <laughs> at the O'Brien pub. <laughs> but anyway, so other than other than those three I gave you, why would you have an E in? You switched it up on me, except for I mean the engineer, of course. But you switched it up on oh, me. I wanted to know. If you're, no, I, 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 I got you. I can, can play you ball. Can you think? I could think. How do you spell think? <laughs> it starts with a T. T H I N K. Come on. Anyways, there are different words that are kind of like a theme for the Ask Brian show. Some of them were the engineer. There was a excellence and, of course, excitement were of them, but he already covered those. But he was not showing any empathy because he already took away the engineer one because he knows that's my favorite one because I am the engineer. He can't run the show that without me. It has nothing to do with empathy just because I selected one. You were not empathetic to me. I doubt that. <laughs> See? No empathy, folks. Anyways, outside of that, the ones he didn't cover, well, one of them was uh, experts because everybody on this show happens to be an expert in a field of whatever they uh, are yeah, working what in. What are you an expert in? Engineering. And interrupting. That starts with an I, so it doesn't count. <laughs> That's the I and the E in Brian. <laughs> That's, there we go. <laughs> Other ones we have, let's see, we have, well, you took away excellence, so there was a, I did say empathy, and I did say the other one, so the other one was, well, you said uh, excitement. I have tears now. <laughs> you said excitement, isn't there also enthusiasm, right? It's not like that. Well, you, I was waiting for, you, you're the one that's- Enthusiasm, woo! There Come we go. On. <laughs> oh my. Oh my God. And then experience, because everybody is experienced in everything they do here. So, without any further ado, A D I E U. He's very well trained. <laughs> Jeez. So, why do I like the word ado? Because every single letter in there minus the D is a vowel. Well, I think he's trained well. So, all right, I'm going to take out two pieces of fish and throw it to him, and he can swallow those fish just like the seal <laughs> oh in the circus. Here you go. Tracy, Here you go. Tracy oh, help. He didn't catch him. He didn't catch him. Now they're on the floor. Tracy, catch help. Fish. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm, I just don't know what to do with him. I, I, I don't I, know. I, I, every week I think we make progress and then we revert back. I, I, I can't. I, there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Well, because, you know, KHCS is what? What do you mean? Like no other station in the world. All right. Having said all that, now we're ready to go. We have a great guest, and our guest is not down the street this week. He's uh, he's far away, and I'm very glad to have him on board. I might pronounce his name, hopefully not, 
His name is Modav. Is that correct? Yes, Peter. Modav, M-A-D-H-O-E. Okay. So thank you for yeah. being on the show. We have a couple of questions. We always like to start the show off with what your background is. So I know you have a company now. Before you get to the company, how you founded it, how you created it, and why you did it, and what that business is all about, I'd like to get a little brief background. So what was your first major job? I'm not talking about you know delivering newspapers or being an engineer in a KHCS studio or something like that. But what was your first real job? So I'll be very frank, uh, Peter, my first job was the business I'm doing currently. I started back when I was when I when I got out of school and I started a small takeout store in India in New Delhi. That did well for us. Moved on to our second store and that's the only thing I've been doing for the last six years. What kind of store? In my six year old career. It was a small takeout store. It was a Pan Asian takeout store by the name of Beijing Street and we still run two of those stores in New Delhi, India. And it was a Pan-Asian takeout store where people used to order Chinese and Thai food and, and that used to get delivered to the to people's houses and offices. Well, my first question is, so who is the cook? I mean, do you have the background in, in those type of foods or, or did you bring somebody on board that was from that background that had, a, had an ability to, to make those foods? Honestly, it was a side hustle. So they were, I wasn't a cook. I, wasn't, I didn't belong to the hospitality background, but... I managed to find a cook, I managed to find a manager, I managed to find a delivery boy, I managed to find a person who helps the cook and put all of this together. And that's how Beijing Street started back in 2015. That's some side hustle. I mean, most people, a side hustle is, okay, you know, I'm making $50,000 a year, I'd like to make an extra ten, and, you know, and then maybe that builds into something. You, you know, that's a big operation, what you got going there. Now, did you have any dining or is it all food to go? Um, it was all delivery. It was all delivery and it was all takeout initially. Yes, complexity was very high. When I graduated from school, got admitted to college and all, all throughout college, I was just kind of building on my cloud kitchens, as they say. Uh, we started our takeout stores, but when the first one did well, we started the second one and we further evolved to becoming cloud kitchens, cloud kitchens. And did you have, you said Pan-Asian, so did you have both? the same type of food at each of the locations as you grew or did you only have uh, yeah okay we have the same cuisine and the same brand and the same and then similar teams across multiple stores and you started that when 2015 that's when i was about 18 years old wow wow and then how did you market yourself to other people i mean you know it's one thing to have a, a store or a restaurant people can come by and walk down the neighborhood and order it but you're pretty much a delivery service and it's not like you're domino's or somebody nobody knows who you are so how did you get started right so kind of we started in a small locality uh we did the traditional methods of marketing promoting it locally using local medium and and then slowly these food aggregators started coming in something similar to what uber eats is out there these aggregators in India, Somato, Swiggy, and all of these platforms started coming in. We started enlisting our restaurant on these platforms. We acquired a lot of customers on the platform. And of course, acquisition, retention, you know, both of them happen in parallel. So we kept acquiring customers, retaining them, using our service and quality. And that's how the journey began in 2015. By 2019, we had four cloud kitchens running across the city. Now, is that the name of all the locations, Cloud Kitchen? Yes. It's called Cloud Kitchen. It's called a Dark Kitchen. It's any kitchen without any signage on the outside. And it's these are just four walls within which there is a kitchen built from an infrastructural point of view. And it's only meant for delivery. And it can host multiple brands. It can host multiple labels at the same time during the same operational hours. So when you say hold multiple labels, explain that. 
right? So I mean, within the four walls, I'm already a you know operating a brand called Beijing Street. I can also operate another brand called Flintstone Pizzas because all it requires is another oven to be installed and another pizza chef or a pizza cook to be hired, and we start pizza delivery as well. So. You know that's basically optimization of existing real estate that we have kind of adopted over the last couple of years, and we we operate multi-brand cloud kitchens in India, and that's what we were doing till 2019. And this is going to sound—it's not uh, intended in any other manner, but you know, how how many cooks can you have in a kitchen? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. It's true. You can't have too many. Huh? You can't have too sure many. He, I'm sure you never heard that one before. It's a yeah. true fact. Yeah. You got a pizza. You just can't have side. too many, too many cooks. Too many cooks on the broth is going to kill the kitchen, huh? Exactly. Well, that's the acronym. <laughs> that's how it works. But uh, I mean, but it is an issue, right? You know, if you got, you know, right, 200 right. feet. an issue. Yeah. Yes. Well, you have to uh, you have to separate the orders. You don't want you know the pizza going out to the somebody who ordered the dim sum, and you don't want you know uh, vice versa. And you got the pizza, right? Well, and unless they yeah. wanted, maybe they wanted the pizza. <laughs> we don't know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So how is that all tracked? That all goes through the system, the operating system, all right? So yes. The platform, and yes. then so everything is tracked. Currently, I'll just tell you, we evolved to becoming a cloud kitchen platform. So we were earlier just a kitchen, you know, a company with multiple cloud kitchens, hosting multiple brands, following the traditional method of business. 2020, when the pandemic hit us, all four of our kitchens had to be paused. That's when we kind of didn't want to shut shop and wanted to continue uh, to do business and continue to be in existence. And that's how we evolved to becoming a cloud kitchen platform. Very simple, three stakeholders in the entire platform. There is the kitchen, there is the brand, and there is us, the network. We help brands expand using, you know, a network of kitchens with idle capacity. So we work with brands like Baskin Robbins and, and a few other leading dairy brands and, and you know, desert brands and F&B brands in India. And we help them scale across multiple geographies by giving them access to kitchens which have idle capacity. And we've partnered with all of these kitchens in every locality which have idle capacity. Or we sign up with them and we plug in the brands that we partner with into those kitchens and we help them expand without having to kind of invest in the kitchens, without having to deploy the capital expenditure, without them having to kind of have a fixed recurring expenditure. So that's the platform that we're kind of currently running right now. And that's what we're scaling. Does your platform allow people to order directly from your platform or they have to go to an Uber Eats or DoorDash or somewhere else? Correct. So, so ordering channels are very different. We're more like an expansion channel for brands. Uh, it can be a pizza brand, it can be a burger brand, it can be an ice cream brand, a coffee brand, it can be a shakes brand, it can be anything, it can be a waffle brand. So we help them expand. We're more like an expansion platform for them. We give them access to multiple geographies and multiple kitchens within those geographies. And we give them access to speed, basically. And do the, the drivers work for Cloud Kitchen or they work for the other companies? Do you have any drivers for your company? No, so we're a platform. We don't have drivers. We're only consist of, we, we only consist of kind of three stakeholders. One is the kitchen, the brand, and us. So there is no driver. There is no food aggregator. There is no end customer. All of these other three stakeholders are external stakeholders, and, and, and they have nothing to do with our platform. So we just have kitchens on one side, and we have brands on the other side. Brands get into the kitchens, expand their distribution, and they partner with multiple platforms. To kind of take orders and financially the, the money go, runs through the other platforms and then to you and then you give it out to the kitchens or does it work go through your platform so it doesn't go through our platform uh, at the end of the month 
or at the end of the cycle, whatever is decided and mutually agreed upon, the revenue goes to the brand directly and we charge a percentage of the brand's revenue every month and that goes to us at the end of the month, that comes to us at the end of the month and we, we pass on a part of that to our kitchen. So it's a pure play revenue share model on both sides and we pay as we go and then it, it's, it's a through and through revenue share model. What's to stop these other people that are as part of Cloud Kitchen from starting creating their own? Why do they need to go use your platform? Why can't they go directly without you? So I'll tell you, our solution is more like a full-stack solution. We're not only giving them access to real estate and access to speed, but we're also giving them access to our entire warehousing and logistics network. So for example, if a brand is entering a new city, so they drop all of their inventory to one point in that city, and from that one point to all of the different kitchens or different locations that they opt in for, the entire logistics and warehousing is also taken care of by us. So if we go and bypass the ZSW platform and deal directly with the kitchen or the brand, uh, they don't get to, and they're not entitled to the entire backend solution that we're also kind of providing with respect to warehousing, logistics, inventory management, SOP control, support systems, etc. And of course, the technology as well, the full, the full multi-stack technology that we have where we're managing inventory, warehouses, SOP control, point of sale, everything. That's a very interesting point, though. You've got multiple, so you might have Pan-Asian, pizza, yeah. I don't know what others, what others there are out there, but whatever yes. type of food. Every you've cuisine got- under the sun. Every cuisine under the sun can be kind of put to a compact concept and that can be scaled up using the entire platform across geographies. We give them access to rapid expansion. How do you control the inventory, you know, you can't have 50 pizza boxes and 50 uh, ribs in the refrigerator and all these different things in a small little quarters. So how do you, how does right. all, all the inventory get maintained in one little small location like that? I'll tell you. So wherever we take space from kitchens which have idle capacity, brands are supposed to deploy, for example, a freezer. They're supposed to deploy a freezer in that location. And they're supposed to store all of their inventory within that freezer. And the inventory which comes in is in accordance to the space that they have at the store. And in terms of how we kind of check all the inventory, it's all done through technology. So whatever is coming in, whatever is getting sold, whatever is being wasted or damaged is all being counted using technology. Once a week, there is a team, there's a long-term team which goes and does a physical check of each and every store to cross-check that with the balance shown in the technology in the inventory module. And that's how we kind of tabulate technology and keep a check on all of that. Wow, that, that's pretty amazing because I'm thinking of the small little kitchen area that you've got where you're sharing the kitchen for all these different people. And then I'm thinking, well, okay, it's one thing, you know, you're making a pot of spaghetti over here, you're making the dim sum over here. And then on the other side, you got a sushi chef who's making that. And, you know, and then somebody wants ribs. I mean, there's a lot of different so things not- Got it, got it. No, I think there's a slight disconnect here. All of this preparation does not happen at the store level. So if it's anything that needs to be cooked like a dim sum or a sushi or or even a wrap, so 80% of the process takes place at a commissary kitchen. It's only the last step assembly that takes place at the store level. So for example, if it's a wrap, then the tortilla and the filling both come from the commissary kitchen and they reach all of these outlets. At the store level, the crew member deployed by the brand is only supposed to be assembling the product, packaging it, and dispatching it. Of course, as per SOPs and protocol. But doesn't it take time to get from the kitchen where you're cooking the ribs to bring it over to the small kitchen to assemble it into the into the packaging to get it out? So it's all done, you know, once a day. So for any kitchen, the inventory comes in the morning at, say, 11 a.m. 
so from and their inventory sufficient to operate the kitchen till 11 pm at night so all of it comes at one go in the morning at all the kitchens and it's all planned uh, very seamlessly according to the routes and according to the inventory and according to the revenues of the last day and the last week we have my co-host tracy go ahead Okay, so I am fascinated by this business model. I think it is so incredibly innovative. I would love to know your story about how you went from where you were to where you are. Can you share those details with us? Yes. So I started back in 2015, as mentioned earlier, small takeout store did well for us. 2016, started the second store. 2018, graduated from college, decided to scale up in the entire food tech and cloud kitchen space. 2019, was running four cloud kitchens across New Delhi and India. And 2020, COVID hit us, evolved to becoming a cloud kitchen platform. We tested the entire model uh, from the lens of acquiring kitchens and scaling up our own brand. Uh, December signed our biggest customer, Baskin Robbins, 125 stores, six cities. Um, February this year signed another in leading brand, leading dairy brand in India called Caventers. And there's been no looking back. Raised our pre-seed run of capital uh, two months ago. Uh, we're now we're now in two cities. We're going to get to three cities in the next quarter or so. And we're supporting the growth of about 15 brands across about 80 kitchens. Wow. So, but what was, what was your motivation, like your personal motivation to, because it's not easy to run a business like how you, what you're running and to build it to scale like you're scaling it. What was your personal motivation? What was that aha moment that you said, I want to do this thing? You know, there wasn't any aha moment as such. It was just like a side hustle that I started. As I, I told myself, we'll see how it goes. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, you know, that's the attitude always in the start because the stakes are always low. And uh, it just, and one door just opens another and, and it opens the next one and then the one after that and the one after that. And, and, and that's how, you know, things kept falling in place. First store did well. We went to the second store, then the third store, then the fourth store. And, and that's how the story kept moving forward. And I started while I was in college. So I had a lot of time at hand. And uh, I also had kind of, uh, you know, a thought process that anything being done in the early years, in the offense years are only going to be helping, only going to be adding to the experience, only going to be adding to the entire exposure. So that was also the mindset at the back of the head. And of course, the journey was kind of exhilarating. The journey was fun. The journey was crazy. Good days, bad days, ugly days. But in the end, you know, as they say, all's well that ends well. And if the days ended well, you know, you can't ask for any more. What's the most important lesson that you had when you were starting the, the business during those college days? I mean, you go into school, uh, you're one person. What was the biggest thing you learned from that time period? It's always, uh, you know, the one thing that I learned in the early years was the ability to kind of firefight multiple challenges and the ability to kind of shift gears. You know, you're going to get a call from a vendor and then you're going to get a call from your customer and then you're going to get a call from your manager and then you're going to get a call from somebody else. Right. The first thing that every, anybody, you know, starting up needs to know is the ability to change gears and the ability to shift gears. Because what you're doing at 11 a.m. can be very different from what you're doing at 12 p.m. can be very different from what you're doing at 1 p.m. So having the ability to shift gears every hour, every minute is very important. I think that was the biggest learning early on. And well, I was going to say you said there were good days and there were bad days. So. What would you consider a highlight on a good day? And what would you consider a challenge on a bad day? The highlight of a good day is when you had a good revenue on a Saturday evening. You expected X, but you got to X. You spent, say, expected 20,000 rupees. You got a 45,000 rupee sale at the end of the day, right? That's a good day for you. Another good day is two of your customers who don't know each other called you and said they like food. That's a good day. Bad day can be 
you ordered something you didn't get it a customer ordered something customer didn't get it the customer and an an unhappy unhappy customer you made a loss the day the revenue wasn't good order volumes weren't you know satisfactory you made a loss so i mean good days and bad days can be defined by and, and they're a function of just everything in the business right from revenue to customers to vendors to operations to everything that exists in the in the, in the entire business good days bad days and ugly days are just a function of all of those things and how impacted are you so let's say if a customer does have a bad experience so many restaurants they live by their reviews and die by their reviews just in general the restaurant industry is your business impacted by Yelp reviews and things like that as well Yes, it is very much impacted by all of the reviews that all of our customers post. So we had a separate team, and we still have a separate team uh, whose only scope of work is to kind of have a look and review all of the reviews that we get from all of our customers across platforms. Speak to customers, see why they had a bad experience. If they had a good experience, are they ordering again? Are they regular customers? Are they new to our platform? Are they like are they repeat users? Why is the repeat rate gone down? There's a, there's a separate growth team which is only taking care of all of these parameters day in and day out for all of our brands. Yeah, I can only imagine that there's so many different facets that go into a review, and it's very difficult to identify which which is the facet that's causing the reviews. So, do you have it? You said you have a team. Do they personally respond to each of the reviews, positive or negative? To be honest, in today's you know where we are today, it's very difficult for us to respond to each and every customer but we look at a very macro view of the entire performance indicators of each and every brand and each and every kitchen and if something's going wrong early on we identify that we tweak that we check it and we audit it to check if it's improved if it's improved it's fine if the customers are happy it's fine for us to respond to each and every customer at this scale becomes very difficult however if there is any case that has been escalated to us our team directly reaches out to the customer and resolves So let's talk funding for a moment. Did you self-fund this entire venture and or did you then self-fund and then move into investor capital and what was that experience like? I think the mindset and the entire shift. So early on it was a very traditional business. The first store started I was making a profit. Things were looking fine. Invested into the second store and these were company owned stores and then graduated from college. Thought that you know I've got to scale up in this entire space. I've already invested 3 years of my life into this. post college scale this up to four stores and then there was a realization that four stores cannot become 40 you know you go from 3 to 4 and 4 to 5 and back to 4 so it's always going to be in this small little bubble and to kind of accelerate the speed of growth we got to go the venture capital way and that's when we started you know reaching out to angels reaching out to funds for our first pc round we closed the first pc round of $150,000 uh, we had investors from us singapore and india backing us in this round we're we're now in the market for our seed round and we plan to scale up to the next 10 cities in india you know in the next 6 to 9 months and where is the biggest area of growth for you in terms of scaling the business like what are your goals for taking things to the next level so right now we're at two cities after raising the seed round we're going to be at about 10 12 cities and we plan to take this india is a very big market for us i know before we look out india is anyways a very huge market for us India itself has about 500 delivery cities so we can go from 10 to 50 and then to 100 and then you know so on and so forth so the next three rounds the next three phases of expansion are packed in India for now was one of your original plans when you closed your first seed round to expand your team and if so what does that look like from going from being the team that you had to where you are now 
it was very difficult, you know, when we started hiring early on because we were a bootstrap venture that time. It was very difficult for us to hire people at market salaries. We hired interns. We trained the interns. Or we gave them a promise of converting them into full-time employees, into permanent employees once we raised our round of capital. So we found a couple of interns. Few were good. Few were okay. And the ones which were good, we converted them. And few of those interns are now city heads. They represent the entire city. They're growing the entire city. They're growing markets for us. So early on, that was the format. Now, once we raise capital, we're hiring people from the industry. Again, for us, we don't need experienced people. We don't need CXOs. We just need young people with energy. And, and, and you know, energy is what is needed in an early stage venture right now. If there is energy, we'll be scaling to markets at a faster speed. And speed and agility is the key right now. So you weren't looking for a specific skill set so much as you were just looking for passion and energy. Correct. I mean, in an early stage venture, you know, a lot of moving parts in the engine. So what you need is speed, agility, and energy. And with all of these factors, you know, an early stage company getting up to the next level doesn't require much experience. It just requires energy and, and agility. And what about managing this team? So is everyone remote? And what are some of your challenges in terms of managing your team? Okay. So while there was a lockdown in India, the team was working remotely. But as things have opened up, office has also started and everybody works out of office. We only, we're very, uh, you know, we have a very different approach when we're managing our team members and when we're, when we're empowering our team members. Uh, one of the key things is we're more output focused than input focused. So we, we don't calculate the number of hours, the number of days. We're not an attendance company. We're more towards the output of all of our early members. So they're given a task. Now you're doing it in two hours or you're taking 28 days to do it. You're getting the job done. You're in a good place. So one is being more output driven. And, and the second is we have a very defined manner of how we interact with all of our crew members. And we're very calendar obsessed. We have a daily stand-up call in the morning just to discuss what we did yesterday, what we're doing today, any challenges faced in Terem, and just to keep ourselves aligned on the larger vision. So calibrating everybody in the team, aligning them on the vision every day, every morning is what we do. We huddle up together and we have this 30-minute morning meeting and post this meeting, everybody gets to gets to their own work and, and that's how the day starts. So we've been talking about a lot about this business that you have. You talked many times about the vision and our listeners are saying, we want to know what the vision is. So what is the vision? Right. The vision is very simple. We want to create an entire ecosystem and for FNB, we want to create an entire ecosystem for brands wanting to expand using our network. We plan to get to about 1,000 kitchens over the next three phases. We plan to have about 200 to 2,500 internet restaurants. And the plan is very simple. Anything in India, anything food and anything in India that has to be touched by ZFW, at least in the delivery space, at least in the delivery space. Are there any restrictions that the Indian government has over, over your business? Not really. It's very, it's very simple. It's very easy to do a food business in India. It just takes about 15 days to get all of the compliances in place, all the licenses in place, onboard yourself on the platforms and go live. So that's not a roadblock. Any, you know, that, that, that's nowhere a roadblock. We were talking earlier about your team. And so as part of your growth, are you planning on expanding your team? And what does that look like? Yes, because now we're actually building the technology of the entire venture and we're building our own proprietary technology. So the next steps and the next few months, we're going to be hiring uh, the entire tech team as an in-house function. 
of course, over and above external entities taking care of our technology development. And of course, as we scale up across geographies, we need operational teams, we need sales teams, we need marketing teams, we need we need finance teams, all rudimentary functions, legal, finance, inventory, everything. And of course, you know, team building is an ongoing function for us. Hiring and firing is always an ongoing function and it's a paddle function that, that cannot be, you know, bypassed. So what do you look for in a team member? If you needed to hire X, you know, is there something that, that, that you need that person to bring to the table? You know, I feel uh, the willingness to learn and, and the attitude always has to be straight. If that is straight, I feel, uh, you know, skills can always be owned and skills are never a roadblock. I feel attitude is a roadblock. The willingness to learn, the rigidity is a roadblock. Skills and skill set, if there's always, this is already a, you know, a minimum degree of skills that the person or the candidate already possesses, uh, skills are never a roadblock, in my opinion. At least when we're hiring at ZFW, skills are never a roadblock. So it's more you- about the energy, it's more about the willingness to learn, and it's more about the excitement of being part of an early stage, a very fast-moving early stage company. Yes, that's what we look for. How can you tell that in an interview? So we do two, three rounds of interviews. There are two, three people doing two, three rounds of interviews. Uh, we don't believe in looking at resumes. We don't believe in vetting LinkedIn profiles. We just like to speak to the candidate. We like to have a very open discussion with the candidate. We like to talk shop and off shop with the candidate. And I think two, three hours of discussion with the candidate gives us a fair idea of his energy levels, of his willingness to learn, of his attitude, of his rigidity, and of all the factors that we're actually looking for. And how would people, if they want to get engaged with you, either by being a part of your team or want to do business with you, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Okay, so we have a website, zfwhospitality.com. I'll just repeat it, zfwhospitality.com. And my email address is madhav at zfwhospitality.com, M-A-D-H-A-V at zfwhospitality.com. You can either write to me, you can say hi to me on LinkedIn, you can fill up the form on the website, all channels open, all doors open. So tell us your favorite client acquisition story. Yeah, so I'll tell you, my first customer, Baskin Robbins, reached out to the CEO on LinkedIn. He gave us time on call. Uh, we explained the entire value proposition. It was a happy experiment. There was no deployment of capital. There was no upfront investment that he had. We closed the customer in 15 days. That was one of a good milestone. You know, if you look back retrospectively, that was a good milestone for us. Wow, yeah, 15 days. Woo. Well, we have less than 15 seconds. So you're to KHS 1240-98.1 FM. Thank you very much for listening to the Ask Brian Radio Show. Thank you for tuning in to the Ask Brian Radio Show. You can listen to us every Thursday on KTHS AM 1220 and FM 98.1 or via Facebook Live or anytime wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit askbrian.com to join the conversation and ask us your business questions and we'll answer them on our next episode. That's askbrien.com.